What's good to be back with you this morning. Um, I've been doing some traveling. I, I would say that I've flown this year far more than I ever have. And there was this thing where, you know, I was talking to my sister about it on the phone. And she's just like, oh, I bet you're racking up miles now. And I'm like, yeah, I, re- I really don't care to. I don't like flying that much. I'm not afraid of it. I just don't like it. It's not a great experience. And especially, you know, where it used to be. Has, has anybody seen Catch Me, if, if you can, the the um, Leonardo DiCaprio film where he pretends that he's a fraud man and he pretends to be a pilot and there's this elegance to it and now I'm like there's this you know it was me coming back from Vegas with this drunk dude almost falling asleep on me it's just like there's no elegance in this at all but this is one of the interesting things too is that I don't know if you've been flying lately we'll see if I can get it can we get it new remote so you have to press hard what did I say? You never see the pilot anymore, do you? Like, you know how the pilot used to stand there and have his hat on and stuff? You see the flight attendant. What? How old am I? Is that just weird? Do some of you remember being on the flights where the pilot would stand there too? It's just like, have a great day. Yeah. You used to get wings last year. Like, it used to be this experience. So, so this, is a, this is what's interesting about the, the pilot situation here too because you know some people are like well the plane doesn't even we don't even need the pilot anymore because all it is is autopilot the whole way i don't know if you've heard about this and it's something that i believe until i was listening to a freakonomics podcast because they were talking to this pilot like questions you always want to ask the pilot and they're like what do you even do with the autopilot he's like it's not like the plane flies itself it's like you have to enter in coordinates constantly you know and you're checking all the gauges at the same time so it's not like we're sitting up there just you know reading I don't know, Vanity Fair or whatever. It's not like we're having this experience. Like things are actually happening because we're getting used to this autopilot automated world. So I don't know if you know Tesla. Sergey Brin has the Tesla Motor Corporation. And just here in the last month, tragically, there was the first death that was caused because of the Tesla autopilot. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. Maybe you didn't even know this because what's funny at the time, I was like, are they doing that? And Sure enough, at this death, they had uh, all Tesla cars had racked up over 130 million miles without a noted fatality. But when that happened, it made huge news. Maybe that's why you heard of it because the the news was just like, I can't believe that this autopilot failed. It like caught the side of a semi, couldn't detect it because it was reflecting in the sun, and then it just ran into it. And um, you know, people were just aghast. But what was interesting is that if you look at the statistics on automobile, automobile deaths, in 1899 was the first year that they actually started to collect that. And 29 people died in 1899. And the amount of cars on the road were not that much. You know what I mean? So it's like, what were they doing? You know, it was probably preceded by the here, watch this, and then it happened. And then annually, over the past seven years, about 33,000 people die annually in automobile accidents, which is interesting because as, even as we're covering all of these horrible terrorist incidents right now, we don't even focus on that now. It's like, no, one death with an automatic car is whatever. But man, 33,000 people in America die every year on the roads. You know, if, if you know the stats, you might be like, I'm just not driving ever again. But we do it. Now, what does all this come to? And, I'm, you know, as we get into our study of First and Second Kings, I want to take this someplace that we might not think. It's the concept of control. 
And especially even today, as we look at the automation of control, how good we feel about it. I was telling Dylan, it was like, I was telling him this weird story because I've been, you know, new job. I've got Windows now instead of Mac. I'm trying to relearn Outlook after like 12 years and it's just paining me. And I set up this whole, I've got meetings all week over the state. I set up these appointments and then they're gone. And I'm like, why are they gone? And then my colleagues are like, nope, they're on our calendar too. So I created them. It's on his calendar. Mine are gone. And then it said something like expired on like July 18th. I'm like, how does does that expire? It's not supposed to happen. The reason I'm so angry is because of like this. I'm supposed to use that technology. You know, it's supposed to allow this to let Steve be like, okay, you can be stupid for a while. And then not think about it. And things will just automatically happen. And what's interesting is even that place when you're like, oh, Steve just wants to be stupid. Actually, it's more about my control. I want to have control over every aspect of my life that I can automate some things and let it move. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. And as we're talking about what's happening in Israel, and again, I didn't listen to the podcast yet of what you talked about last week. So I'm sorry if I'm repeating any of this, um, which is probably just your sermon, your notes right here. But the first thing we saw and we've seen here is that God's people, the nation of Israel, had a rift. It was between two kings, Rehoboam, son of King Solomon, and Jeroboam. And the country was split in half. Israel is the land to the north and the orange. And the green area is Judah to the south. Now, moving forward in the study of 1st, 2nd Kings, we're not going to talk a ton about Judah, especially over the next few weeks. We're going to be talking all about Israel. And what did we skip over because we're not going by every verse and chapter? We were looking at the weaving of the kings of Israel and who was over it. So we talked about Jeroboam a couple weeks ago that he basically was a numbskull and, you know, just went over, did his own thing. And after Jeroboam were a trail of kings who did worse and worse progressively. Nadab, Basha, Omri, Zimri, or excuse me, the other way, Nadab, Basha, Ella, Zimri, Omri who was one of the worst, it says this in 1 Kings chapter 16. It's like, if there's an evil guy, Omri was a king who was evil. But then we get to somebody who said, oh, and by the way, worse than that guy is who we're focusing on here, which is Ahab. Did you talk a little about Ahab last week? And Ahab had a wife. And even if you don't know a lot about the Bible, maybe you've heard of the name Jezebel. Okay, it's, a, it, it's, it's become synonymous with like evil. Like you don't see a lot of little baby Jezebels running around on the playground anymore. It's like that name still has yet to come back in vogue because it's that bad. But here's the tension we're going to talk about. So we have Ahab who's ruling. He's a wicked, wicked king. But the tension is going to be between the kings and the prophets. Because even though the kings are the ordained of God, they were supposed to be the leader of God's people. The prophets were supposed to be the voice of God. And when those two do not agree, hijinks happen. And the last thing we saw to set up what we're talking about this week, and did you talk about the drought last week, Larry? That was the big thing that preceded it, is that Omri and Ahab, they got so bad. It was so horrible that basically he told his, God told his servant Elijah, hey, let's cut this rain off. Let's, we're just going to stop. No rain until they figure out. And you might, you know, I just got back from Southern California. That's how they live 365 days a year. Like no rain, right? The problem is, is actually what they're experiencing right now is that when you actually don't get any rain, there are drought-like conditions. And if you are in ancient Israel, which was a farming agrarian society, no rain actually means death. So God's like, let's stop the rain and let's see if the people get it. And that brings us to 1 Kings 18. We're not going to read the beginning of it now, but if you'll start 
And this is the other reason, Kathy. I know you can read like nobody else's. Do I need to turn on the lights while you're reading? Why don't we do that? I might turn them on anyways. Go ahead and start reading verses 16 to 24. And let me, so just you can, if it, what page in the Blue Bible? 254. And just to start off in case you're confused, because you're going to be wondering right here at the beginning. It says, so Obadiah... And if you know anything about the Bible, there's a whole book in the Bible about Obadiah. And you'll be like, oh, it's this, like, I know this guy. You don't know him. It's a different Obadiah. So you're like, there can't be that many Obadiahs out there, right? But different Obadiah, don't get caught up. Help us out, Kathy. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baal. Now come in the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450. Hello? Okay. Get for us. Choose one for themselves and let pieces and put it on the wood, but not not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. I love this. It's the antenna now. Oh, hilarious. This is so exciting. It's going to be, I'm, I'm sorry when the roof falls in later. Like, we are in the vein of if anything can go on, Murphy's Law. Let's talk about this text, though, so sticking with it. Here's the basis of it. So Ahab sees Elijah coming up, and he's, first thing he says is that, hey, it's the guy who brings all the trouble. And Elijah is like, no, you're missing it because you're taking your issues and projecting them onto me. Actually, the trouble you're experiencing is directly because of your actions, and you do not understand that. And what that actually, what preceded that was Ahab's married, marriage to Jezebel. And as we see here, there's a system of worship that existed called Baal worship. And, you know, just picture of Ah Baal for you right here. And it was actually something that Ahab adopted because of his hot evil wife, I guess, right? Like there had to be some explanation why he changed everything. And her name actually, when you look at the etymology of it, it's Jezebel. Like she basically was named for this standard of worship. Now, here's the tough thing for scholars to be able to figure out. They're like, okay, what was Baal worship in the ancient time? And the thing is, is it's difficult to nail down because as Bible explains Baal worship, really it was a classification of regional worship. As you would go from town to town in ancient Israel, you would worship whatever the God of the region was, and it might change names as you went here. So Asherah is one that we read in the Old Testament, or Molech, who we've talked about previously. And the umbrella under which all these things were called was Baal worship. And that is what Elijah is just saying. Look, this worship is bad. Baal, by the way, the, the, the word Baal is the Hebrew word for master. 
So Baal was their master. But this is interesting about the worship because really Baal worship was about the people mastering Baal. Even though it was a religion, it was a religion that was focused on themselves and rooted in humanity. So worship of Baal took on different incarnations. The first one was sacrifice, and that sacrifice would happen with animals sometimes, but oftentimes child sacrifice. And you would ask, why would a parent kill their child? Because the ancient belief they had was, is that I sacrifice this one to the gods and they give me even more. So this one kid, it's just fine to let it go. And as much as we want to criticize, as we read through the Old Testament of the Bible, all the horrendous things that happen, and sometimes the things, we're going to talk here later, of something that happens that we have to explain away. The one thing that we really discount too much is the value of life in the Old Testament. Because in most ancient societies, children were just a possession. And if you were fortunate enough to figure out how to live to adulthood, then you won, like, the lottery. Like, mortality rates were one in two. And even the ancient world, even less. So kids were just seen as inconsequential. So it's like, oh, why don't you sacrifice it to Molech? You can have another. It'll work out fine. So here's the thing. That was one part of the sacrifice. The other part was temple prostitution, where they would have relations with prostitutes at that. And all of this was supposed to be for fertility. So the reason that you worshipped Baals was so that you could get from Baal what you wanted from him. It was an exchange. I give Baal what he wants and then he gives me what i want and especially during this time why was baal worship so prevalent because elisha elijah prayed let's cut off the water tap and this whole agrarian people were hoping for something else and they believed that god was then gone when in reality god is just saying stop your baal worship so what do they do they lean into it even more they're like well then we just need to worship baal more because god isn't answering god's like no stop your baal worship it's it's the definition of insanity, right? So they move further and further into it. Um, so we get this matchup at Mount Carmel. And um, again, we'll see if I can get there. Kelly and I, back 10 years ago, we were actually at Mount Carmel. Right now, there's, a, uh, there's a, some sort of uh, mosque on top of it. It's a very nondescript mountain. But there's a, a lot of space. It's interesting that, number one, it's at the crossroads of many different roads. So when this matchup is announced, Mount Carmel is a good location for all the people in Israel. It's right along many different trade routes, especially the main trade route for how somebody would get to Africa from Europe or Asia. So it's in a prime location, okay? The, the other thing is that it, Carmel actually means vineyard of God. And that, and by the way, uh, El for Elohim in the Hebrew. I don't know if you've heard that term. That's the El at the en- end of it. But it is a ambiguous name for God, meaning that this was always probably a high place where people worshipped. And we're going to see later that there was some evidence of worship. Three participants then in this matchup, because what we have is Elijah telling Ahab, let's put Baal on trial. Let's put God on trial. And we will have a matchup. Baal's prophets versus the prophet of God. And the third participant within this was Israel, the audience themselves. How would they react to what happened? Why is that audience so important? Because really they are the ones who provide the power to this. Why is God angry at Israel? Is it about Ahab? No, it's not really about Ahab per se. 
It's that Ahab is representative of what all the people are doing. All the people were turning their backs on God. So what Elijah wants to say is like, let's put Baal on trial. Let's put God on trial and let's see who comes up. Why is this so important for the Israelites? Because they have pushed making a decision for the longest time. They don't want to make a choice. They want to live in a world where they don't have to choose between God and Baal. They want the smorgasbord of faith to see what works for them. And as a result, when Elijah says, figure out who you're going to serve, and the response is the mute button. Nothing. And Elijah's like, okay, I see what is ahead of me. So we get this epic matchup between two different people. Kathy, read verses 25 to 29. Let's see the first part of the matchup. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Elijah's a gamer here. He's a gamer. Because the first thing he does, he says, you guys can go first. Because recognize this, if they go first and they're successful, anything that he does then is discounted. It doesn't even matter, right? Because he'd have to one-up them, it's just not going to work. So he's like, no, 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 you guys go first. And by the sheer numbers, it's 450 to 1. The odds have to be on the prophets of Baal, right? Because there are many of them there. And they start into their gig. They start out in the morning. They've got the bull on the altar. All they need is a little fire from heaven to start this epic matchup, to end it all right there. And they're shouting and shouting and shouting for hours in silence. It's very sim- it's similar to what happened. Like the people, when Elijah said, you need to choose, silence. Yet the response from the gods that they were worshiping from Baal was silence. So right about noon, Elijah starts talking trash. I mean, that's how we interpret it, right? Because that's what you can see. You, at this point, you're like, uh, you know, Elijah's a showboater. He made it into the end zone and he's making it about him. Actually, There might be a thing where Elijah, really, if you view it from this way, he's probably helping out the prophets of Baal here. Because now he's starting to kind of mock Baal. And in mocking Baal, if Baal really exists, Baal's like, oh, no, he didn't. Boom, sends fire down because he's ticked at Elijah, right? So really, you're just like, is Elijah showing poor form here? No, I'm actually, he's being helpful. And actually, to the extent of us, and this is one of the little nuances that we don't get in the translation of the scriptures when we look at it in English. But in the original Hebrew, there is the implication, it's like, maybe he's busy. The actual Hebrew says, maybe he is relieving himself. That, day, that Baal is dropping the deuce, right? That he is preoccupied with his bathroom reading regimen and he cannot have enough time to pay attention to what is happening right here. There's a little bit of Elijah basically totally mocking Baal at this point to see what the response is going to be from the prophets. And that does something to the prophets because the next thing you are, the knives get out and they start cutting themselves 
And in this place, they are trying to say, look, Baal, we are shedding blood for you. We are your servants. Respond to us. Do not leave us alone. I love this. In verses 26, 29, even after all of this happens, we see the word no repeatedly. The word for no in Hebrew is ain. It's ain, 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 ain. Five times to reinforce the point that despite the best efforts of the prophets, what is the response? Nothing. Nothing happens. And this is supposed to illustrate to the people of Israel how Baal is going to help them. In the midst of all their ardent worship of the animals that were killed, of the children that were killed, of the inappropriate acts that they committed, what was the real response of Baal? Nothing. Because they were worshiping a farce. Baal is absent. He's quiet, he's disconnected, he's uncaring, and he abandons his prophets despite their passion. Now it's Elijah's turn. Kathy, let's see what happens here. If you'll read, as I milk this thing out, verses, are we at 40? Yeah, I think it's 40 to 46. Is that right? Nope, nope. I skipped a verse, I'm sorry. Read 30, start in verse 30, to verse 39, please. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, Mm -hmm. and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and, the, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's Elijah's turn, and now we're going to see where the loyalties of the people will lie. And we get a precursor of that when Elijah has to take the altar there that was the altar of God and rebuild it. So as much as you want to say is that the Israelites were actually between two systems of religion, what this proves is they really weren't even there at all. Like the only thing that linked them with their spiritual lineage was their DNA. Like really, it's how some of us view our faith. You know, it's like, well, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christian. It was passed on to me like you know, by blood. Like some of us view it like that. And this is how they were viewing it. Yeah, sure. They worshiped the Lord because he was the one who gave them the land. And, you know, instead they were so into Baal worship that the altar of the Lord was empty. So at this high place, God wasn't being worshiped. Baal was. So it's interesting, the little things that happen right here that Elijah does to reassert the idea that this is about God. He says he takes 12 stones, which is the number of the tribes of Israel, supposed to be this visual reminder that, yeah, this altar, this is a representative of of who you are through God. 
I like even in his prayer, he hearkens back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these patriarchs that they would have known. They, they, they would have been fully familiar with the stories of their lineage, but now they have just left it behind for Baal worship. And whereas the prophets of Baal spent the better part of their day shouting, praying, cutting themselves to try to get their God. It's within a solemn prayer that Elijah just basically says to the Lord, show up. And there's something within the prayer that's a little peculiar because he actually invokes himself within here. And you might just, as we come through this, be like, is Elijah just a punk who is obsessed with himself? Because he asks, like, let them know that I'm your servant, I've done these things. But Elijah knows that his reality is an extreme inextricably linked with God. It's something we don't view. It's like we have a detachment of like who God is and then who we are as his people. But I think this is a reminder for you and I to remember is that when you say that you are a follower of Jesus, then you wear that as much as yourself. It's you. It's about you. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says... You know, instead of saying, hey, follow Jesus' example, he, he, he says that many times, but he says succinctly, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And it's something that we need to recognize. As much as Elijah's representative of God, you and I are in our actions. Doesn't mean that we have to be perfect, right? But it does speak to this idea that we represent him wherever we go. So not only when Elijah's turn does he go to town right here, he actually adds some flair for the dramatic, Right? He digs a hole around the trench, which people are like, well, you might fall in. You know, just a deep trench. And then he begins to say, soak it. Bring water and soak this altar. Now, this is interesting, too. Let's remember the state about it. Because you're always just like, oh, I get the idea. Because how much is it going to be for God to answer if, you know, you create a moat around your altar and then soak that? How is he going to cause fire out of something that's wet? If you've ever tried to burn wet firewood that's just a little wet, it's difficult, right? If it's drenched, you're not getting it started without some sort of gasoline. And then you're going to be on America's Funniest Home Videos when that hilarity ensues. He's soaking the altar, but also put this within the context of what's happening in the land right now. There's a drought. And during that time, it's not easy to get water. And people might have, I I don't believe we were up on Mount Carmel. There was not a steady stream of water supply right there. So it might have actually become a tour. He's like, okay, a chore. Like, okay, I'm going to get started here. But first, you guys go get some water. And they probably had to wait, you know. It was like that uncomfortable time where they're just talking about things, you know, like, so you've been profiting? I've been profiting, you know, I don't know, like. What do they talk about during this time? They get the water. They drench it. Elijah says his prayer. And then God answers. In a huge way. Consumes everything with fire. And the point is proven. And notice this. There was silence before from the people. But here it is affirmed. What do they say? Baal is God? No. They say the Lord. The Lord is God. They are ready to choose. They're ready to commit. And we could end it right here, but then the story gets really interesting. Even more interesting if possible. So now, Kathy, if you read verses 40 to 46. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. 
Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. I am not an accomplished Pokemon Go player. Um, I didn't know it was going to be huge, so I I probably downloaded it before any of you. But at the same time, I realized, I bet I've downloaded it before you. You don't think so, Garrett? The The nearest Pokestop, Pokestop, is, from here, is where? You would, I figured that would be your thing. It's actually right on the corner over here. It's a Pokestop. You can do it. But the nearest gym, and a gym, which I had to find out, because I'm like, oh, let's work out. No, a gym is where you battle other Pokemon trainers. You see, this is how I'm not really good at it. But the nearest gym, I think, is a while away. Have you gone to gyms yet? Yeah. Okay. There's one by your house. So you battle people in gyms. Yes. So the Pokemon, cause, and then you battle Pokemons, it happens. If you're, like, totally confused, just go on the Internet so you'll figure out something. And then tell me. But here's the thing. It would be a lot more interesting if at the end of the battle it's like, oh, you lose your Pokemon and you're dead. It might not be as popular anymore, but it would be something, correct? And you're like, oh, there was this matchup between God's prophet and the prophets of Baal, and God won, yay. And now it's like, kill them all. Like, that just seems much, doesn't it? It's like, how did that, that progressed quickly, you know? Like, how did that work out? And what's interesting is that even on the top of Mount Carmel, this, I took this picture 10 years ago. And sorry, that's, it was back when photography was cool when you were doing things at angles. So, I, so like it looked cool at this point. But it's a really tall statue. And it's a, a picture of Elijah. And I don't know if you can see, he's got his sword up and his foot is actually on a prophet getting ready to kill them. God! <laughs> like, you know, like, you don't think like this is a popular thing. It's just like, we need to love our, 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 you know, love our enemies well, or kill them if they're prophets of Baal. What's going on right here? And this is the thing, is understand is that there's something greater going on here. At the very beginning of chapter 18, um, we didn't see this verse, is that one of the things that brought this matchup to the point was Jezebel was busy going all over the land of Israel, killing the prophets of God. Before any matchup took place. So, and the Obadiah that's introduced when you read the story, the reason Obadiah and Elijah get hooked up is because Obadiah was trying to hide prophets in caves so that Jezebel wouldn't find them and kill them. So one thing is going into this little matchup, it's implied here is that somebody was going to die at the end of this. Like whoever's God lost was going to die. Just the prevailing thought was there's no way that God is going to show up and answer. And that's why the prophets were so haughty. When you have a huge crowd, you put your faith in each other. You put your faith in all the stuff where you're saying, okay, we can victor over this. That's why nobody picks David over Goliath, right? And similarly happens here. They never thought that they could lose because they were so concerned. And and the problem was is that they really didn't understand who God was and what he was up to. And this is also to demonstrate this aspect of power. The conflict between prophets and kings. Because the idea is is that 
we look at the king and his royalty and his opulence and we think that person is the personification of power and has to receive God's blessing. Parenthetically, that's why for us still, you know, between two conventions right here, political conventions, as we're so concerned and worried about Trump or Hillary, right, is how this is going to play off. Understand is that power is fleeting and even some people that we view that have the highest power are really powerless. Look at the end of the conflict. Elijah goes to Ahab and you can tell like Ahab's a little concerned right here. He's like, hey, it's almost like Elijah saying, hey, Ahab, you look a little flush. Just go a little bite to eat. It's all going to be okay. Because now the prophet has all the power. And the good thing about the prophet having the power is that Elijah recognizes the source of his power, correct? He understands that it's not about him, that it's truly about God. So even as this disturbs us, uh, this quote from uh, Phyllis Tribble, who is a a theologian, I think she um, gives a good synopsis of what happens here. Because you're like, why does God then say, I'm going to kill the prophets? What Phyllis Tribble writes is that in a peculiar way, Elijah's incendiary victory exalts Jezebel. After all, her blatant actions occasion this contest, right? Her killing the prophets is why this matchup happened anyways. Now, the presage of the aftermath, Elijah emulates Jezebel. Elijah's just doing exactly what Jezebel is doing. Winner and loser have exchanged identities to expose the futility of the contest. Basically, Elijah's saying, if you can kill prophets, I can kill prophets. But here's the thing too. You're killing the prophets of God out of insane jealousy. I had this happen because God is God. And you need to recognize that. And again, you might, this is not supposed to say, uh, this is not directly applicable today, right? So this is not a thing where you're just like, okay, we're Christians. That's why we should want Muslims or Hindus or Jews to be dead. It's just insanity. And it's not what the scriptures teach. This is very in the moment of ancient Israel. And recognize this was a theocracy, right? Ultimately, God was in charge of this country. And its supreme leader and his wife did not see it that way. And the power has shifted. And the final thing that happens right here, rain. Elijah's like, go out to a service. Just take a look. You see anything like coming from the sea? And by the way, you can actually see from the top of Mount Carmel to the Mediterranean Sea. It's a beautiful vista. He's like, nothing. He's like, check again. Like a little small cloud. He's like, here it comes. Sure enough, by the end of the day, rained. The afternoon started with fire. It ends in a downpour. And all this is supposed to be the culmination for the people of God. Recognize this. Your worship of the Baals has led you down a wrong path. God is true. And he's the one that provides. He has the ability to turn off the tap. Turn it back on. Because he is God. He is the one who provides. And that's where another scholar, Walter Brueggemann, I think I've talked about Walter Brueggemann now lives in Cincinnati. I stalk him. Great Old Testament scholar. Writes the synopsis about this story as such. Is that then things go from drought to rain, from curse to blessing, and from death to life. The rain, any, you know, cinema student will tell you that the rain motif is popular. Even for people that don't even believe in baptism. You think about the Shawshank Redemption. 
as he escapes from his prison, it just is drenched in rain. The, the idea of that being cleansing, cleansing is actually a metaphor for life. This transformation is nothing short of resurrection. And I would offer to you this, is this is one of the reasons why we study the Old Testament too, is that this is actually the story of the gospel. The story of gospel is found right here because Baal worship is about manipulation. Baal worship, friends, Baal worship was about control. It was about a religious system of control where we could tell the gods what we wanted and their job was to provide it for us. And the aspect of worship of God that really plagues many people is that God does not work this way. Sure, you might go to churches and hear that he, they, you know, they long for him to work. You just need to pray more. You need to, you know, just live right. And if you're not being prosperous, then God's not taking care of you. This is not the gospel, friends. Where the true aspect of it is, is that we live in a fallen world. And good things and bad things happen to us, whether we follow God or not. So in our dismay of how somebody else is prospering, but, you know, but they're not with the Lord. We have to just recognize that that's life. And similarly, I've seen some of the greatest servants of the faith go through suffering that is not their fault, but it's the result of a faulty world. It's fallen. It's not going to make sense. But the only thing that makes sense for us then is to link ourselves to God and trust that he is going to sincerely provide for us for eternity. But he is not to be controlled. It is about God's grace. But we make it about control. And that's why many people are unhappy in their Christian walk. Is because they feel that God should be doing stuff for them. And the problem isn't God. It's our perception. By the way, God gives us the chance to have control. You know, you go to Genesis chapter 1. One of the first things he tells Adam and Eve is just like, hey, I'm giving you the world. Just do, do your best, right? Fill it, subdue, subdue it. Like have control over this. God's giving us control. You know what our issue is? Is that it's just not enough. We don't want just control over this. We want all of the control. We want autopilot. We want the ability to eliminate all aspects of life that we find distasteful so that we get our way. And friends, that's not the gospel. That's not the scriptures. That's not what is work right here. The people of Israel wanted what they wanted. They didn't really want God. And friends, this is why I think it's all best summarized in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Because this is the key that they were missing. This is the key that perhaps, even though you're not going to go out and slaughter any prophets of Baal this week, maybe this is your issue. Even though you don't worship Baal, you want the control that Baal offers. You want to be able to eliminate anything else so that you have control of your destiny. However passionate you are about that, it will fail. And this is why we heed the words of Jesus. To seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, and what happens on the back end. Everything else goes well. You're like, wait, I'm liking this. Don't make it about prosperity. Don't make it about what you want. Make it about what God's came. And truly, when you're seeking out God's way, you'll find yourself enraptured in a contentment that is inexplicable. You'll be happier than you know it, even if things aren't going your way. Why? Tomorrow has enough to worry about itself. You don't know what's going to happen. We prayed about a lot of things today. Maybe God's going to intervene and and cause some great healing right there. Maybe it's just not to be. 
and these friends of ours will perish and will be saddened. We don't know what's happening, but the one thing we can say within this world is that if we give ourselves over to the creator, the one who made all this, ultimately he's going to take care of us. He'll take care of you, whether you have control or not. Friends, that's why we have communion, and that's why we take this every week. We focus on Jesus. Again, you think about how God lives, because again, you know, was this whole engagement on Mount Carmel about God's ego? Like, I've seen, actually, critical scholars make it. It's just like, boy, how arrogant was God that he needed everybody to see him and then to kill all these prophets? It's like, okay, this is about God. Friends, you know, I, I think that's a distorted view because when you look at the seminal moment within Christian history, what was it? It was God coming to earth in human form when he did not need to, giving his life for our eternities. That's the centrality of what the gospel is. That's what changes things. So I'm going to pray. We're going to pass around the trays. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to commune. Let's use the next few moments to think about who we're letting control our lives. Father, we thank you for this time in these scriptures. Father, when we just grasp at control, we ask for your forgiveness. You've given us enough. Help us to find that contentment. And in our pursuits, make sure to seek first you and your righteousness. And we can say this, Father, with affirmation because we have seen in our lives how you work and move. And we believe fully in the work of your son, Jesus, who came to earth, who died for our sin, that we might have eternity with you. We thank you for this and we remember him now. Amen.